Hey, it's Michael Angelo Caruso. I'm here with Bob Wiltfong. How are you, Bob? Hey, good, Michael. Thanks for uh, having me. Good to see you again, brother. Um, Bob yes. is a fascinating cat. He's got um, a, a fascinating rearview mirror, everybody. He's been in comedy forever. He's been on a major TV show that you know about. And we're going to talk about his career highlights, the state of comedy in general, and a few things we have in common. Before we get started, I want to uh, thank you for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to this channel. We've got more interesting interviews coming up. And if you like what you're hearing, you want to click that silver bell so that you're notified of new content. Also, if you're listening on a Podbean or iTunes format, make sure that you check out the YouTube channel and let us know what you like. I haven't seen you since we were together on the speaking platform for a Rotary District event in Florida, which was Jacksonville, I think. Yeah. And they pressed you. And I was dressed service. as a what? I was dressed as a pirate. I was when we last say, saw they, each other. Yeah. <laughs> they pressed you into service as a kind of a pirate MC, and you were great, yeah. man. Oh, thanks. I even asked you about Thanks. I never I never know I had that inner pirate in me. Yeah, well, until we, that we, event. don't we all? Yeah. I asked you about your dialect that day, and you said you just watched a bunch of Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah, it's kind of a uh, a really bad hackney uh, English accent that came to mind. It's like, are you your matey? You know, this great. kind of thing. Yeah, you had this great uh, elaborate costume on, and I remember you had a wristwatch, like all good MCs. You were all oh, right on occasion. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like all good pirates have. Right, and and your vocabulary, you know, I noticed, you know, because uh, if anybody studies the language, you know, you know, there's certain key words that you got to keep coming back to. And one of your pirate words yeah. was scurvy. Scurvy and <laughs> barnacle and scallywag. That's funny. Yeah. Thank God for Google, Michael. As I yes. told you on the day, that's how I found that language. You just Googled pirate themes and our pirate words. And there was like multiple hits. You know, like, oh, to, here's a whole list of pirate terms. I used to be so. in the music business. And when we were songwriting, if you wanted a word that rhymed with something, good luck. Ah. There was no way to find yeah. out. Now you can Google uh, words that rhyme with uh, interloper, three syllables yeah. or eight, yeah. eight letters, you know, and, and it all orange for you. Yeah. yeah. Orange is no longer a mystery. That's right. To, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we have so much in common and there's so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, let's start with your vacation, man. I know you just got back and I'm jealous because I'm yeah. Italian and I've never been to the mother country. How would you uh, rate, how would you rate your time in Italy? It was great. Uh, we're very fortunate in our life right now. I'm, I married, I won the lottery when I married, not only because I married a beautiful woman who I love and she loves me, thankfully, but she does very well. Uh, for herself professionally. And so as a result, we get we get the luxury of traveling nicely with our kids. Uh, so we have three teenagers right now. And so we went to Italy with them, shared that adventure, went to Rome, uh, Venice, Bologna, and then did a cruise around uh, the Mediterranean, including Greece and Turkey. So uh, it was it was great, but it's also very nice to be back home, Michael. Very good. Uh, yeah. By the way, back to words again, I believe it's pronounced bologna. Oh, below. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. You were just good. You were just there for a couple of days. Yeah, I've been there too long. It's good to be correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Italy awaits me and I'll have Italy envy until then. Welcome home. Yeah. Um, I appreciate Thanks. you doing this today because um, 
I'm always interested in comedians' takes on comedy. It's kind of like, um, it's easy to find people who are Rod Stewart fans and you ask, well, what's your favorite Rod Stewart song or phase of his life, you know, that kind of thing. It's harder to find mm -hmm. people, I think, to talk intelligently about humor. Do you, do you think that's uh, true? Is that is that like a specialty topic for most people? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are, it's sort of like the inside baseball conversation, right. right? There are people that are fans of baseball and then there are people that know the game and can really dive deep into it. And I think with humor and comedy in general, there are, there. I came from the discipline of improv comedy, which is kind of a subset of comedy. And uh, one of the, the monikers that we labeled ourselves, at least when I was actively involved with it, is we are improv nerds. There's like people like improv, and then there are people that can talk about it in depth and admire the moves that are made by different players in different scenes. Yeah. And I'm one of those guys. So yeah, yeah there you can go deep with some of this stuff. And I think the average person is just looking for the the set and the turn, and they don't even know what it's called. They think of right. it as a punchline or a joke in its totality. Yeah. But you guys, man, you know, you know all the nuance and these little things that are happening yeah. and the context, yeah, I, and the timing. You know, I I think it's very similar to musicians. Like when yeah. you I just watched some documentaries about Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys. Yeah. Right. When you talk to fellow musicians, there's an admiration for how he produced songs and what he brought to the musical landscape as a pop artist and a producer. Yes. Yeah. That is really um fascinating to fellow musicians and they appreciate the art of it for a person like me i'm you know i just trust that they know best yeah uh, so with you know with comedy there are people that aren't household names but are well known within the comedy world because of what they do as an artist yeah in that world um and then there's you know the household names so yeah, yeah. i think it's very similar to musicians talking about fellow musicians when it comes I to think comedy that's with me that's one of the reasons I like the Seinfeld show about comedians getting uh, comedians in cars getting yeah. coffee is yeah. that it's a bit of inside baseball. I, I think they probably leave out the most technical stuff, but when they're talking about yeah. which, why a riff or a routine worked, I just love getting under the hood and hearing how the mechanics talk about making the engine hum. Oh, yeah, I love yeah. that so much. And I, and I hope we get a chance to do a little bit of that today for our friends who like humor and comedy. Yeah, yeah, the efficiency of Jerry Seinfeld is, you know, admirable. Of he, course. He, he fine-tunes jokes till there's a word that maybe it needs to be left out or put in. Which is fascinating just, so. just in and of itself because we don't really think of comedians as being efficient. That's not like one of the top yeah. 100 adjectives that you'd apply to to uh, to anybody that's in the funny yeah. business. Um, yeah, that's one of the things that separates people. It's just the efficiency of joke telling, yeah. So let's start with the banal Fred Flintstone question. People ask you who your favorite comedian is. Is that an easy answer? Uh, yeah, there's definitely comedians that come to mind. I think for me, I'm, I was born, uh, I was a child of the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. So that's going to influence my, yes, exactly. So that's going to influence my answer or my thoughts a little bit. Richard Pryor is one of the first ones that come to mind because he was so funny and so true. And that's been an inspiration for me and my own comedy is, is, you know, telling your story Yeah. and that there's nobody on the planet that's like you. So tell your story. He um, was one of the, he's definitely an inspiration. one of the first truth tellers. And what made Pryor super interesting was that he had some 
he had some strange shit happen to him. Oh, and he had horrible stuff. Just by going on stage happened. and talking about it and poking fun at himself, yeah. setting himself on fire, uh, the, the, the yeah. fights that he had, famous fights that he had with his women, many yeah. cases his wives. People didn't yeah. talk about that stuff back then. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways with comedians, there's there's a school of thought and it's brought up in the Jerry Seinfeld documentary Comedian, where they explore this. I think it's, um, I forget the comedian's name, but he says he's a, a, an established comedian and he says young comedians come up to him and say, how can I be funny? And he said, the key isn't to try to be funny, it's to try to figure out what makes you angry and talk about that. Right. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, that, and uh, from my own professional experience, we'll get into this a little bit later. John Stewart is also a guy who's influenced by that, that feeling of find out what makes you really upset. And then that's what you write comedy about. It's not what makes you laugh. It's what makes you angry. He said that in music too, like a lot of young, a lot of musicians do their best work when they're young. Billy Joel, who just, he's doing stadium term tours now in his seventies. Yeah. was just yeah. here at Comerica Park in Detroit. And ah, the were amazing, right? He had a yeah, song back in the day. It was actually called Angry Young Man. Oh, yeah. So what is it about anger? And that it's almost anger is like a violent emotion. What is it about that that yeah. is so creative? Have you ever tapped into that? Yeah, I think I've got a couple of thoughts on that one. I think part of a comedian's job, if they're doing their job well, and it, to me, it's the sign of a healthy society when they're allowed to do this. Yeah. is that they're commenting on things and shining a spotlight on what's wrong. Um, and I think that that's part of anger, right? Of watching things that don't make sense yeah. and calling it out and laughing about how how stupid the thing is yeah. that you're laughing about. If so I anger, think there's... Sorry, if not anger, which I described a minute ago as violent, then it's an irritant at the very least. It's it's on oh, the yeah. negative side of the emotion scale. You know, I'm annoyed by this. Let me tell you why I'm annoyed by right. it. Right. Right. I, I might have interrupted. And I think the key for a, a key for a comedian is finding that irritant and then finding the relatability, yeah. the humanity in that, yeah. and also not putting themselves out of the spectrum of being the irritant. So if you know, not saying, oh, all these people outside of me are stupid. It's like, hey, I'm stupid too. Yeah. Because I do the same stuff. Yeah. It's just calling out truth. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of what uh part of my professional background. I crossed paths with Amy Poehler before she was on Saturday Night Live. She's one of my improv comedy teachers, and she she subscribes to that same school of thought. So I became a student of that. Of uh, part of our job as comedians is to to shine a light on what's going on. Yeah. And to satirize you know, things that don't make sense. I've heard that good comedians say the things that other people are only thinking. Yes. Which is a yeah. similar concept, right? That back to that truth, you know, I'm going to speak the truth, even though most people don't have the courage to say it. I also yeah. heard one and time, think, go ahead. Well, I think there's also a line that I've realized as I've gotten older, there's also a, the edit is very key in all that too, Michael. I think there's a benefit in sometimes not saying things yeah. that I think young comedians start to say, well, I'm just gonna spout off about everything I see stupid and uh, realize that, you know, there's value in sometimes not saying anything. Yeah. Um, that that has some value. That's interesting. And, and then you could play with the timing of it. So there's saying it and saying it quickly, 
and there's not saying it at all. And then there's yeah. like this Stephen Wright, um, these slow comedians, you know, where you're doing like the slow yeah. burn, where you almost, yeah. Cosby did it. You almost, the audience almost gets there before the comedian does because yes. it's so obvious where he's going. Like the, all the yeah. signposts are there, right? And that's yeah. because it makes it really interactive, right? Yeah. yeah. Let, let the audience make their conclusions. You don't have to connect the dots sometimes. And that's the, that's the brilliance of good comedians too. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah. I saw the uh, recent George Carlin American Dream documentary. I think I pinged you yeah. about it. You, had, you said at the time you hadn't seen it. I assume that's still true. Yeah, still true. It's, you know, it's an okay uh, deal. Um, Carlin was interesting because he was also intellectual. He was also like super irritated. That was, mm -hmm. in fact, in the second stage of his career, when he really got the afterburners glowing, it was all about the rage, the outrage, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. for various reasons. Um, and he ended very angry. Uh, in fact, yeah. a couple of the celebrities uh, were saying, who was it? Stephen Colbert said he, he, that Carlin lost him at the end. He was just over the top angry. So there is a limit yeah. to what people want to hear on a comedy stage from, yeah. you know, in terms of uh, the negative emotions. I totally agree. I saw Carlin when I was in college. Okay. And I don't know how long before he passed after I saw him, but yeah, my first reaction when I saw him there is it's like, this is a, this is an angry old man diatribe, mm. less than a comedy set. And I think Lenny Bruce fell into that same category. You start to get, you start to forget about the art of joke telling and the power of satirization and start to just feel like, oh, I've got this stage. I'm just going to tell the world what I think. Yeah. Um, well, Bruce yeah, had which other anybody issues. can do. Yeah. yeah. Bruce had other issues. Um, yeah. Because unlike prior, uh, Bruce was such a forerunner on telling the truth. Yeah. That uh, he was getting arrested rather regularly. In fact, Carlin was yeah. fame, tells the famous story. He was actually arrested with Lenny Bruce at one of Lenny Bruce's shows. That was an interesting story. Oh, wow. Ah. But if you're getting, if, if you're afraid and you're mitigating your speech and, and your legal problems are starting to encroach upon your lifestyle, that's got to affect your sense of humor. Yeah, totally. And you know what's what's different about the current climate of comedy is you saw this with Chris Rock, you saw this with Dave Chappelle at the Hollywood Bowl recently, is now it's like, I've got to be careful what I'm saying because the audience can actually come up and attack me. This is uh, true in a lot of areas of scary. life. I mean, think yeah. about just recently, um, this is June of uh, 22, everybody, if you're listening. Uh, just recently, um, in America, people have gone to the homes of Supreme Court justices. Yeah. Uh, somebody just broke into the president, I think they have a president of um, uh, Sri Lanka, into his house. Wow. Started cooking up food, jumping in his pool. Then they set the place on fire. Wow. But we live in sensitive times for truth tellers. And I'm not and I'm yeah. not saying I'm an advocate of uh, of the Supreme Court justice any more than I am the president of the of Sri Lanka. This is not a political statement. It's just saying that 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 we live in sensitive times and people have access now. You know, you can find out where anybody lives again, thanks to Google. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean to comedy and free speech? And uh, Bill Burr seems Bill know, Burr, as an example, seems to have gotten away yeah. with it so far. I mean, this guy's pretty yeah. direct. How, how yes. does he do that? 
I don't know. I think he's playing with fire, to be honest with you. I think it's just a matter of time before Bill Burr says something that, that he gets canceled for. You well, know what I'm saying? As edgy as anybody is right yeah. now. And so far he's been, he's been unaffected by it, but I, I agree. Yeah. He's, um, and that's in a way it's sad because he's telling truths that make me belly laugh. Yeah. But I also in the, yeah. in the back of my head because of the culture we live in, I'm like, how did that just, how did you just get away with that? Yeah. 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 It's a very interesting time. I think there has, I think the only answer to that is we have to better uh, define what is appropriate uh, protest and what is over the line. Yeah. And I think um, there was a political uh, conversation just this past weekend on one of the Sunday morning talk shows. And it, 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 again, I don't want to get polit political on this, but I think there's some truth in this that the in America, we are allowed to protest. That's part of one of the things that makes this country great is the freedom to speak our minds without uh, repercussions, right? Right. But that doesn't mean a lot that allows you to go to a person's home and break in and, you know, uh, cook in their house. That's wrong. You can't attack somebody physically because you disagree with them. That's wrong. Yeah. That's an right. inherent human thing. Well, so, but we live in a society where it's hard to know that difference sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's because it, because we we're so ham handed in the way we think about things. You know, we, even free speech has always had exceptions. You've never yeah. been allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. Yeah. Right. So just because it's uh, free doesn't mean it's appropriate. And people have yes. trouble, I think, sometimes discerning the difference. I think Gervais, yeah. who is another favorite of mine, has been artful at trying to explain not successful but artful at trying yeah. to explain it's just a joke yeah i'm not making fun of the person i'm making fun of what happened right yes a big difference yeah because the haters yeah. will say to gervais the cancelers you must hate women because you made a joke about women he says no i'm it's the context i'm making fun of the context and and the silliness of the context i'm not making fun of women I think that nuance yeah. is lost on most people. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so too. It's a very fine line between being a truth teller and being a mean bully. Yeah. Uh, or uh, being insensitive. And I think what you mentioned earlier, Michael, is the key is being appropriate. Yeah. That the context is important and knowing that there are times when you can say things and there are times when it's best to just be quiet yeah. and listen. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to know sometimes you've got to make those snap judgments and sometimes people fail at doing it. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, tell us more about your storied career. How did you said you got, yeah. did you get started in improv? Is that how you came up? Well, I got started. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, went to school at the university of Kansas. For a a oh yeah. There's no humor in Nebraska. <laughs> Nebraska. Johnny Carson, man, came from Nebraska. Oh, that's right. That's our, Johnny Carson. Yeah. 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 No, there's, there's funny people in there. Okay. Uh, uh, but I get your point. I get your joke. <laughs> um, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, went to university of Kansas and I majored in broadcast news journalism. I wanted to be a TV news reporter because in part, because I didn't know any other path to get to where I ultimately thought would be fun to get, which was Saturday night live. Okay. So my bright idea was I was going to be a TV news reporter. I was going to, uh, fulfill some of my other passions, which is history and storytelling. 
And I did that for a while. And then lo and behold, in 1998, got a job at a 24-hour local news channel in Long Island, New York, at News 12 Long Island. And when I landed in New York from Wichita, Kansas, this is where I came from at the time I was working in Wichita, I realized I finally had a chance to pursue this improv comedy thing that had been in the back of my head since I was like 16 or 17 years old. And so I called up Second City in Chicago because they were the mecca of my heroes, my John Belushi's, my Bill Murray's. And I said, hey, is there anybody that does similar stuff to what you do in Chicago? And they referred me to the Upright Citizen Brigade that had just started in New York. And that's how Amy Poehler and I crossed paths. And, uh, and I started to do improv comedy. And then, uh, and then lo and behold, September 11th happens. And six months after September 11th, I have a reckoning, a calling of like, life is short and I'm not doing what I love to do. So I want to pursue this dream of being an actor and a comedian. And I quit TV news and became an unemployed actor. Like most people are in acting. We are unemployed and periodically interrupted by work as actors. And uh, I got lucky because I did a one-man show in New York that got well-received over the years and put me on the radar of the Chappelle show and the Daily Show. What was the name of the one-man show? It was called Anchors Away. And okay. it was a true, it was a truth-telling story. It, it, it became, it started as my uh, showcase for Saturday Night Live. I was doing original character monologues and trying to get on the radar of Saturday Night Live. And it did that to a certain degree. But then the feedback I got from audiences and directors and the more I performed it was they wanted to see less the character monologues and more the truth of my story, of why I got out of TV news, of what I was trying to do as a, as a comedian in New York and being this Omaha, Nebraska kid doing it. And so it became a truth telling story more so than a ha ha funny character monologue, one man That's, show. I bet that blew your mind because yeah. you never thought the Nebraska piece would be that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think so. And uh, a friend of mine who was also in comedy at the time gave me a great note. She, and she's gone on to now be a producer of uh, Superstore, the NBC show and some other stuff that you would see on TV. But she said, Bob, your, your story is unique. Uh, there's a lot of East coast kids who are in New York city trying to make it big. You're like the only Nebraskan I can think of who has like this regular nine to five career job in TV news. Yeah. So tell people about it. So that's what I did. Um, I know that both of us are currently involved with uh, teaching people presentation skills, helping them be more yeah. effective from the front of the room. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back on this now, it, it's obvious to me, perhaps obvious to you that the story is everything. You know, oh, you, can, yeah. you can do the, the song and dance, the clown show, the, the the uh, skits but when when yeah. you're sharing your backstory simultaneously you become a real real person it, it's like making yourself three-dimensional everybody does yeah. this now um springsteen did it in a broadway show mitch album did it with tuesdays with maury i don't know if you read yeah. that book but it's a fantastic yeah, it's book great book. uh for those of you that don't know he uh, he uh he goes to visit one of his old college teachers who's dying of cancer he only goes on tuesdays so it's called Tuesdays with Maury, but every other mm -hmm. chapter is about Mitch Album and his interesting career. Yeah. So that that interweaving uh, thing actually makes you funnier. Back to truth again, right? If there's not not enough yeah. truth in the comedy, we're going to get it from your personal life. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Michael. One of the things I teach in your, we are very, uh, we're on the same path professionally because I've been a presentation skills coach for about 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, and you too. And one of the things that is the great thing about storytelling is it brings the heart to all this data and mind stuff. Yeah. So it, uh, one of the things I say about storytelling with the people that I teach is, you know, it gives your data wings. It touches the heart before it reaches the mind. And that's yeah. the power of it. Yeah. Um, it, that we as humans are hungry for stories and other human uh, experiences. Yeah. So that's what stories do. I imagine if people visit you on YouTube, they'll get some free presentation tips. Sure. Why not? You know, I'm here. Wilt. Yeah. <laughs> Wilt Fong is W-I-L-T-F-O-N-G, everybody. Bob Wilt Fong on YouTube. You got so, it. Take me through the Chappelle Daily Show transition and... Uh, because that's heady stuff, man. That is rarefied air. Chappelle at the time wasn't who Chappelle is today. He had this right. kind of small show, almost a cult following initially. Were you part of the yeah. beginning of that show? Yeah, I was very fortunate. Uh, it just goes, I've had a couple of times in my comedy career that are reminders that you always, you never know what's going to come back to you. So wherever you're at, treat people nicely. Yeah. and treat people with kindness and consideration. So with Chappelle, I, where that started is I was taking classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade, right? And they had a comedy sketch show on Comedy Central that I became an extra, a background player for. As a performer at their theater, they recruited us to do background, which is just, you know, I'm basically half of my face in the background of a sketch. And on one of the days of shooting that, I happened to go back into New York. We were shooting in New Jersey, and I had a car ride with um, jo Joy Baher's daughter, oh. uh, who was working on the show. And I shared with her uh, my background as a TV news reporter, right? And lo and behold, a couple years later, Dave Chappelle comes to Comedy Central, and he's shooting a pilot for a sketch show that becomes Chappelle Show. And they need a TV news reporter character that is good at improv. And at that point, I had a couple more years of experience in improv. And Joyce Beher's daughter, Comedy Central, said, well, there's this guy who does this thing. He's a legitimate TV news reporter. So they contact me and said, can you send me some of your funny TV news stuff? So I did. Long story short, I got cast in the pilot for Chappelle show Wow! in that role. And that became, if you're familiar with that show, for those listeners who are slavery reparations, it's kind of an iconic sketch with Chappelle show where the premise is all, you know, all these black people get money and then they spend it on horrible, you know, wasteful things. Yeah. So I become the wall street reporter who reports on all the things that they're spending their money on. And that led to other roles in Chappelle. Chappelle show blows up, becomes this, it's, you're absolutely right. It becomes this kind of niche thing to this spreading out. The rest of society becomes aware of this thing. And that helped me kind of get hot in the business. And so about a year or two after that, my memory is that I got cast on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart as a result of that. So Chappelle was uh, filming where or recording? Where? Uh, he shot, yeah, he shot right around New York City. So there was a studio, I think maybe in Brooklyn okay. that they shot the okay. interstitials with him in front of a studio audience. Then we shot the sketches at different locations. So is it that easy and it happened again? By the way, most comedians have trouble getting it to happen. Getting it to happen once is incredibly difficult. It happened yeah. a second time. This yeah. simply, somebody saw you on the Chappelle show and 
recommended yeah. you for the daily show. Yeah. Yeah. I, at that point I was establishing myself. I was because I was joyful about it. And that was another thing I pass along to anybody who wants to become an actor or any, uh, any field that you're pursuing a dream in is let your joy drive your decisions. So yeah. I was just joyful about doing improv. And as a result, I got better and better at it and got bigger and bigger audiences in front of me. And so I, my rise at Chappelle was also mirroring or reflecting my rise in improv in live theater. So I was becoming a more and more well-known improviser uh, at the same time. So that made it easy for Daily Show to say, okay, we're panning, you know, we're spanning the, the U.S. market for young up-and-coming uh, improv-based comedians. This guy fits the bill. So let's bring him in for an audition. Love it. Now, so what, year it did, what year did you transition from Chappelle to Stewart? You know, I don't know when that all hit. I know that I, I quit TV news in 2002, March, 2002. I know that I booked my first, I had my first piece air on the daily show in May of 2004. So, and I think uh, it felt like forever at the time, but it isn't that long. Now I look back on it. I think a year before that first daily show piece is probably when I did my first Chappelle show. What's, was it like moving from the National League to the American League? Was it like moving from, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, because I'm talking now about budgets and reputation and ratings and how many eyeballs oh, are yeah. seeing you. Was it like moving at the time from the minor leagues to the major leagues? With Chappelle to Daily Show? Yeah. Um, not really, because Chappelle was pretty hot. Okay. Uh, Chappelle at the time was a bigger deal uh, in society, it captured more of the zeitgeist than the Daily Show even had at that point. I think. So why leave for like a year or two? Yeah, Chappelle Show was the show, so it it made it. I think I was more appealing to Daily Show because I was coming off Chappelle than the other way around. Was it a better um, deal, or was it appealing because you had timed out on Chappelle? Why why make the change? Uh, because because Daily Show offered. <laughs> Uh, Chappelle show was, uh, you know, it's an actor gig. So you're hired just for the day to do a sketch. Oh. I wasn't a regular, they didn't have a regular cast except Dave Chappelle, right? And some of his close friends. And I was just a person they dropped into reoccurring, uh, you know, to sketches. Um, Daily show was much more like we have a stable of correspondence that we rely on to fill content on a regular basis. And we want you to be one of those people. Yeah, it was so, like more of a team, a cast of players. So it was clearly Stuart yes. was the star of the show, but you kept seeing the same recurring people. And there's something appealing yeah. about that. I was surprised to learn the other day that Colbert has 100 people on payroll. Oh, wow. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. It takes a lot of people to make that kind of content on a regular basis and make it entertaining. Yeah, you got to really churn it out. Yeah. And I don't know if you all remember this, but The Daily Show was on every day. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. I mean, it's a grind. So I, I know when I worked there, the probably John Stewart probably had about 15 to 20 writers that were devoted to just coming up with material for the day in doubt content that was needed for that show. And then in addition, he had correspondence with field producers who produced the field pieces that also, you know, took up a chunk of the time. I read the book, the, the oral history of the daily show. Ah. Uh -huh. And one yeah. of the fascinating, again, be, be, uh, inside baseball things that I learned was that Stewart, uh, I might probably have the, the details of this wrong, but he pioneered slash developed uh, software 
that could peruse every piece of video produced in the last week about barbecues oh. and then pull that content in a, in a very timely manner so that they could excerpt it and put it in bits. Do you, do you remember yeah. how that worked? I don't, I don't remember an algorithm or something that was like, you know, just, uh, you know, press a button and it, uh, got all that information at the time I was there, it was interns. Okay. So interns were assigned to watch like Fox news or CNN yeah. and look for stuff that might be usable. Right. Um, and inspire the writers to come up with stuff. I'm pretty sure. So now I know ESPN. What's that? I'm pretty sure now there's a piece of software and I, I he actually named it in the book. I, I the name escapes me. So yeah. now they think it about how be. comedy's produced. Uh, now, if they want to do a, a bit about barbecues, they can use the software to pull all this stuff that they would, would take yeah. the interns, you know, months to find. Yeah, it makes and, sense. And they're not the only ones sense. using it. The other, you see other shows, you're like, where did, where the hell did they find that clip? It's through this yeah, yeah. software. Yeah, it makes sense that you would do that. Um, I know like ESPN, for example, they have a whole bunch of people, I would imagine, who are watching all the sports or maybe they're doing it through algorithms as well, but there, there's so much stuff going on. If you're trying to capture it in 60 minutes that you need people to say, Hey, here's an incredible play from this double a baseball game in Montgomery, Alabama, Yeah, uh, that we got to show. Um, and, and the producers you know, love this because this is analogous right. to, I need a three, uh, an eight letter word that rhymes with introvert. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 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 It's really, it's yeah. really punched up uh, the way content is delivered. So what did yeah. you, how long were you with John Stewart? I was only there a year. And, if, you know, one of the odd things about the, at least in my estimation, one of the odd arrangements there is he would have a, and I don't know why they did this. They had correspondents that were full-time employees, and then they had freelance people that they would bring in periodically or work as full-timers. And I, for whatever reason, the year that I was on that show was worked like a full-time employee, but was never brought on full-time. So I was on a, you know, I'd just wait by the phone and when they called, I'd work, but, and I, they liked me. So I worked a lot. Right. Um, but, but then there were people at the time I was on the show, the other correspondents who were all full-time employees were Stephen Colbert, Ed Helms, Rob Cordry, Samantha B, and then me. Wow. And. Carell had just cycled off the show and was just hitting with 40 year old virgin and becoming a movie star. Yeah. So for whatever reason, that was my role. So I was there for a year. Uh, what did you learn in that year? What's the most valuable lesson? Good question, Michael. I did my first thought, I don't know if it's a valuable lesson, but it it, it reinforced the idea that some of the most miserable people I know in this world are comedians. <laughs> that people, it goes back to that, you know, find what irritates you and, and makes you angry. Um, it's a grind to make sausage for any content funnel that needs to happen, right? We talk about podcasts. It's a, it's a constant, you need to feed the machine. Yeah. Well, think of these shows that are produced on a daily basis. You need to keep making content. So it yeah. becomes a grind. And part of what makes you a good comedian is finding stuff that irritates you. And it becomes this, if you're around that after a while, it becomes hard to be happy. So uh, in, the, in that show, I work with some brilliant people. I'll always be thankful for my experience at Daily Show. It's the Harvard of comedy and still is in, in many ways to me. 
Um, but it is, it had people that were like, it's time to make the hot dogs, man. We got to find stuff that pisses me off and write some jokes. Somebody said once yeah. that um, everything is fun until you have to do it. Yeah. Imagine yeah. reading the news for a living. Yeah. Every night, fire, yeah. children being killed, war, mayhem, every night. Yeah. And now the weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of truth to that. It's a great, great sentiment. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, um, and by the way, I've had the same experience. I've met, um, I haven't, I haven't, you know, uh, circulated among comedians in the way you have, but the comedians that I've met in my time in showbiz, and even now, when you have dinner with them, they're not that much fun. They're not the same <laughs> yeah. persona. I find you to be very authentic. I loved my time oh. with you at this event that we did. And even now, you know, there's a, there's joy in your eyes and there's spark and intelligent conversation. Yeah. Uh, but the average comedian at dinner was no fun at all. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, maybe this is too simple, but there's a lot of neuroses. Uh, yes. Comedians. Am I, am I good enough? Uh, uh, there's a, they're always chasing the next bit. Uh, you you can probably yeah. speak more articulately about this than I can. Yeah. You know, i mentioned that I've been watching these documentaries about Brian Wilson, the beach boys, Bruce Springsteen is mentioned in one of these documentaries and he makes the observation in the music business business. It draws people that there are things that are broken yeah. about them. Yeah. And I think it's the same way in comedy. We're broken a little bit because yeah. otherwise, of and one of my jokes is I used to be a comedian. Then I got better. I, you know, I, and, uh, you know, for me personally, I can't speak to anybody else's journey, but for me personally, part of the reason why I was a comedian is because I needed that void filled for me to have an audience say, we like you, you're good. Yeah. And the moment that I realized that that's what I was getting out of it. And that was an inside job for me, uh, that I needed to address. Then I could release the need to try to get up in front of an audience and get approval. Um, so I think there, there is a lot of broken people that are drawn to these creative fields and we need them there. It it's, it's the sign of a healthy society. In my point, when we have a lively art culture and creativity, but there also are, there are reasons why in the entertainment industry, there are so many nightmare stories of personal destruction, yeah. overdoses, divorces, suicide, you know, sexual predators, because those, that is what draws people to this world. So I think for me, I always felt like uh, I was a little bit of an outsider because I was a little bit more joyful than most uh, and a little bit more optimistic about humankind than most, um, which may have been the part of the reason why I didn't have the lasting power of other people. I don't know. We're, uh, we're starting to get some vibrations on end of life type of, I don't know, compilations for Paul McCartney. And everybody uh, oh, says yeah. McCartney is one of the most well-adjusted, human, yeah. humane, and most prodigious artists of all time. Decade yeah. after decade. I mean, you could say there was some, some sleepy years there, but here's yeah. a guy, man, who has churned it out, not just music, uh, multiple formats of music. He's written songs for other people. He wrote two number one hits yeah. from Headfinger, I think. Uh, back yeah. in the day, um, I he's also sc uh, scored uh, classical music. He's also uh, 
he's 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 not afraid to, to delve into other creative things. He's learning new instruments all the yeah. time. This is rare. I yeah. think an anomaly in the creative world. I agree. You've seen Get Back the uh, no, behind the scenes. But, you know, here's my problem with this: the redhead yeah. will not watch that because just because it's it's too much inside <laughs> baseball for her, and it's like six yeah. hours, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a chore to get so through. So she's it. going on. Uh, she's going to go see her mom in South Carolina uh, the weekend after next, and I shall be watching Get Back all six hours. Okay. Fine. Yeah, I I watch it, and I was glad when it was over. I was okay. like, okay, it, you know, it's good. But one of the things that stood out to me, and this is why I'm glad you brought up Paul McCartney. I've always identified with Paul McCartney because to me, when I look at them and Get Back, you've got a twenty something group of incredible musicians at the height of their creative power, right? And McCartney, at least in my, my estimation, bristles with some of uh, George Harrison and John Lennon at points because he has a work ethic <laughs> that wants to, he's like, we're artists, but we've got to create, we can, we've got a good thing. Let's make it great. Yes. And he's struggling as a 24 year old guy to communicate with his friends of like, Hey, I don't mean to be a jerk, but can we work on this little note here or this passage? <laughs> and instead, George Harrison and John Lennon are like, who the F are you, man? I'm an artist. I'm a freewheeling, you know, and McCartney's like, no, man, we got this little thing. We got this window. So let's let's work on this thing. So I've always identified with McCartney. I think you're right. That that marriage of having incredible creativity and and talent combined with an incredible work ethic and a sense of we are churning out things for public consumption yeah. is a rare combination. The Beatles are, of course, very well documented. There's tons of books that talk about how uh, when the Beatles, after they, after they started to spread their wings a little bit, still with George Martin, but taking a, a more active hand in production and arrangement and stuff like that, the other Beatles would be out on Friday and Saturday night. McCartney would go into the studio alone with an engineer and work out yeah, those yeah. extravagant bass lines that he's so famous for. Yeah. You know, they take time, mm -hmm. everybody, to come up with. Yeah. And yeah. so that's why he wasn't just playing basic one, four, five progressions, which was what the bass was famous for. This is how mm -hmm. McCartney became one of the preeminent bass players of, of our lifetime and also elevated mm -hmm. the Beatles music to places it would never have gone otherwise. Yeah, um, this theory about work ethic shows up over and over again in in not just the arts, but also professionalism, Bob, even presentation yeah. skills. Think about yeah. um, uh, Seinfeld was asked one time uh, his best advice for comedians, and he goes, finish your bits. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of comedians go on with half baked ideas, they're not fully curated. I forget exactly yeah. how he said it, but that was the essence of it. It it's, yeah. reminds me of the old joke about country music. And this is country music has come a long way in the last 30 years. But back in the day, back when you were in Nebraska, the funny joke about country music was I like country music, but it seems like most of the songs aren't finished. Yeah. Yeah, I could see so that. So to hang in there yeah. a bit longer, let's move the conversation to presentations and, and, and what you're teaching yeah. clients at Lowe's and other places. Yeah. People don't even really know what a story is. Like I'm, I'm teaching story and, the, and they go up and they tell what I would call an anecdote. I mean, there's yeah. no character, there's no protagonist, there's no character development, there's no moral or happy ending or even inspiration to the story. It's just something that happened. Uh, 
I'm like, dude, that's not a story. A yeah. story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Yeah. 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 That Joseph Campbell, who's one of the, you know, godfathers of story structure, has a real, you know, he has multiple uh, steps in it, but boils down to a three act story structure. The hero's and, journey. And that what we talk about. Yeah. The hero's yeah. journey. Likeable hero, introduce a turning point, and then obstacles that can never overcome. Lo and behold, they do, and they're changed for the better for it. And that I lean on with a lot of my coaching with storytelling is, you know, when in doubt, lean on what it has worked for generations yeah. for storytelling. Um, the other thing it. that you talked about, Michael, earlier that I, I, I bring up a lot with my with the people I coach is authenticity doesn't happen by, uh, by mistake. It yeah. takes rehearsal and practice. Uh, it takes Paul McCartney playing a baseline a hundred times before it looks like it's just off the top of his head. 100%. And it's the same way with presentations. Yeah. You can't fake being natural. And, and one right. of the things about speaking that's so fascinating for me is because there's a lot of negative emotions associated with being in front of people. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the best speakers are authentic because when you're authentic and natural, you're more believable but you can't yeah. ever get there because you're so worried about whether you're having a bad hair day or you don't know your content yeah, yeah. or you're nervous, you know, how can you be natural yeah. if you're nervous? So we got to get you yeah. to a place where you're in a natural state and then everything improves. And part of that, ironically, yeah. it's the old catch 22. How do you get better at speaking? You do more speaking. You do the yeah, thing that you don't speaking. like so that you can get better at it. Yeah. And I, I tied into my acting experience. Uh, one of the things I learned early in acting is rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. And then when you get in the room, forget everything. Oh, and just forget, forget everything, meaning pick up, just try to be so present that you don't have to think of the words it's there because you've rehearsed it, Yeah. but then you're feeding off the energy of the room and what organically happens in that room is what's meant to happen. Yeah. So, uh, in other words, and I, 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 share that with the people that I coach is sometimes we rehearse so much, we get in our mind a greatest hits that we're going to roll out in front of an audience. And we forget that part of being a really good presenter is being present in the moment and open to the mistakes that happen. Yeah. Quote unquote mistakes that happen. Those are gifts. And that tells you that you're being alive and being a good communicator when things go off script. Yeah. And well, how about uh, just being know, open to things that happen, not just the mistakes. Yeah. This is the problem inherent with say PowerPoint. PowerPoint is a linear presentation tool, which means you cannot do slide 13 before you do slide 12. And yeah. so you gotta do everything in complete sequence, which takes all of their spontaneity. I mean, you really have to mechanize the sponta spontaneity if you're doing a 27 yeah. po uh, slide PowerPoint show. Yeah. I, I, that's why I moved off PowerPoint probably 15 years ago now. It's a prisoner, it's a, it's a hostage situation, you know? Uh. You can't move off your slides and you've got to do it in this progression. And if somebody in the room wants to go down a rabbit hole with something important, you have to say, well, let me finish my slides. By the way, the slides are what I think you probably wanted to know today. They're not really what you want to know. They're just my best guess. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing yeah. is just quicksand. Yeah, no, I can see that. Uh, I'm, I come from the school of thought that slides can be a, uh, a cheat sheet. Yes. Um, that they can be used as a way to remind you of your talking points. So you yes. don't lose important information. 
Um, but I totally get what you're saying. The most important thing is to be present in, in the moment and aware of what the room needs, not what you want to deliver, but what the room needs you to deliver. You bet. Uh, it's the most important thing. So what happened at The Daily Show, man? Why, why only a year? That's a good question. I still don't know to this day exactly what happened there. Uh, and I've told people that, and I'm not alone. That's part of the part of the things that all kids should know is the business of show that is show business is um, I negotiated, I had an agent at the time, we, re, we negotiated the new deal with The Daily Show when my year contract was concluding. Uh, we, had a, we had a signed contract, everything was good. It was another freelance deal. It was like, you'll work when we call you, but I was cool with that because that's what I had been doing. And then they never called again. And I don't know why to this day, I don't know if there was something, did I, did I pass gas in a room that was offensive to somebody? I don't know. Uh, but you know, like I said, there's been other people before me and after me at the daily show that have had these weird kind of departures as well. There was a lady before me, I forget the name of the correspondent that predated me that she found out she no longer worked at the show when she showed up at the office one day and somebody else had her desk. Hmm. So it, you know, part of this, what I mentioned earlier, this industry that, uh, invites dysfunction. There are dysfunctional people that are trying to work themselves out in this industry. Yeah. And what, what makes it complicated on a daily show is you get dysfunctional people that are then promoted to supervise people. Murphy's, and they don't know what Murphy's the hell law. they're doing to supervisors. Oh, the Peter principle. That's what that called. When the, when the people okay. that shouldn't be promoted get promoted. <laughs> right. Well, plus, I think so, that, don't you think that I don't think anybody from uh, any HR team from a TV show has ever won an award. I mean, HR yeah. is not their strong suit, right? Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. I think. Do you ever think about they're that? They're really though, good at the creative part. Do you ever think about these people you were working with? They all became like super, super famous, super successful. Yeah. Do you ever think what if? Oh yeah, I I totally you know I went through the seven or whatever stages of grieving after that you know denial anger you know ex, you know acceptance all that their, stuff there's a house, photo go to their house and burn <laughs> yeah. it down remember that but, you know this is the thing a couple of thoughts on that there's a photo of me on election night 2004 in studio it was the only time they put me in studio was election night they did they gave me a heads up like two days before it other outside of that i was always a, a field produced piece on video and um there's a picture of that night of me with the other correspondents. And it is a murderer's row of comedians, right? It's Stephen Colbert, uh, Ed Helms, uh, Rob Corddry, Samantha B, and me. And my thought is I'm the Pete Best of that photo. I'm the guy who, you know, Pete Best is the fifth Beatle. He's like right before they, they became multi, you know, whatever. Pete Best was a Beatle for a little bit. I was a Daily Show correspondent for a little bit. Uh, the other thing that occurs to me is what I've got to tell myself in those moments, because I definitely have those moments, Michael, even today of like, damn it, it would have been nice to have to have the money and some of the, the things that some of the people I work with now enjoy. But it's a trade off. And I'd rather have the money without the fame than just have the fame because fame does not put food on your plate. And it messes with your mind. You'd still be swimming. Uh, you'd still be swimming in the petri dish. Yes. So I think of a of a Stephen Colbert 
I think he was a well-balanced uh, individual. At least that was my indication when I when I interacted with him. I'd like to think he's doing well uh, personally, but I think that there is a very big sacrifice that happens to happen with any professional who pursues uh, their profession in such a big way that their personal life has to take a back seat. And um, so that those are the things that go through my, my mind is I'm not going to get caught up in uh, some of these, like Ed Helms has, you know, I don't know how many millions of dollars now and probably has multiple homes and all that stuff, but he, he has the pain in the ass of being Ed Helms now everywhere he goes. Yeah. Well, in our society, so. we kind of glorify the, uh, the top of the triangle. And yeah. uh, what you never know is what kind of problems await at the top of the triangle. Uh, totally. It sounds kind of, I don't know. It sounds kind of wishy to say it like this, but I think it's true that things happen the way they're supposed to happen. I mean, you just got back yeah. from a beautiful vacation with your wife and children, yeah. a vacation you probably wouldn't be able to take if you were at the top of the triangle. Totally. No way. Right? And I, and I, I wouldn't be married. If yeah. I had stuck with entertainment, I've talked to my wife about this because I had to make a choice between my career and trying to be a good husband and a good dad. Yeah. And I made I made the choice to try to be a good husband and a good dad. Oh, you made the right choice. And I'll, and I'll live with that. Yeah. Yeah. So you got a, something cool happening this year. You're the president of your Rotary Club. Which club is this? Yes. Uh, is the Rotary Club of Ponte Vedra. We're in Nocatee, Florida. We're just south of Jacksonville. Okay. And it is an honor, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah. How many people are in your club? We have, I think, currently right now we have 26 on our okay. roll call. We're a small club. We'll we'll be five years in existence this February in 2023. I always but we're, say we're a mighty club. Presidents and district governors um, always bring not only their personality to the gig, but they bring their skill set. Yeah. Um, when I was district governor, I used to famously ask people uh, either some variation of this question, what do you do for work or what are you retired from, depending on what station uh -huh. in life they were in. And yeah. because that told me what they were really good at and maybe even on occasion what they were passionate about. Because presidents bring, if they're a farmer, they bring a nurturing type of thing to the presidency. You know, if they're a numbers yeah. person, they bring uh, measurement. Do you find that you bring your entertainment sensibilities and humor to the presidency? Um, and this is regardless of whether or not the last five presidents had a sense of humor. Do you find you can't, yeah. you can't help yourself? Yeah, I, I definitely think you're right, Michael, that that's inherently in me. So I, we just had our passing at the gavel event last night at our club, and that's where you transfer power from one president to the next. And I said to the club membership there, I said, there are things that I do well, and there's things that I don't do well. And one of the things that I know that I do well is I bring passion and I bring, whether I intend to or not, I'm an entertainer. Uh, things come out of my mouth sometimes that uh, people laugh at. Yeah. So um, I, I've just got to embrace it. That's a strength of mine and, uh, you know, go with it. I think your club's lucky to have you. I'm, I'm oh, not only glad you're a Rotarian, I'm proud that you're a Rotarian. And it's, again, yeah, thank uh, you. just a pleasure uh, speaking with you today. I hope we get to do more together. Yeah, likewise, Michael. It's good to, that we've connected. And thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. I, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Let's talk before we go about your book, Bob. It's called B the BS yeah. Dictionary. It's available 
uh, on all, uh, in all good bookstores and on Amazon. Tell us about this BS Dictionary. What is it? Yeah, it's uh, the full title is Uncovering the Origins and True Meanings of Business Speak. So BS stands for the traditional BS, but also it stands for B, uh, Business Speak. The origin story will kind of explain why it happened is I'm married to a woman who's a chief marketing officer of a company. And about seven years ago, she was working from home one day. And I've known this woman for 25 plus years, right? I, I get her, we can communicate well. She got on a conference call and she started using terms I'd never heard come out of her mouth before. And it was like tiger team, uh, straw man. I think internet of things was probably in that conversation. And I'm a comedian, I'm not a, a trained business person. So when I heard these phrases, I was like, what the hell is that mean? And she got off the phone and I found it funny that there was like this little language of business that she only used with her colleagues, but didn't use anywhere else. And that they were mimicking back to her. So as a comedian, I started to keep a list and write jokes about some of these things. A couple of years later, I'm doing my presentation skills coaching at T-Mobile in Seattle. And during one of the breaks, I tell one of the participants in my class about this list that I'm keeping of these jokes. Yeah. And this guy says, oh, I've got a list of things we do the same here at T-Mobile. And at that point, I said, there should be a dictionary for all these things because you're doing it, I'm doing it, and other people are responding to it. So then I started to write a book. And the book is a collection. The finished book is about 300 commonly used business terms that we use in the workplace of English speaking business to communicate ideas that we generally don't use outside of those four walls. So we're talking EBITDA, uh, we're talking scalable, uh, stuff like that. Uh, the new normal, net net, win-win, you know, all these things that we just, if you do business, you're like, oh, that's how we talk business. But when you stop and think about it, you're like, where the hell did this come from? <laughs> So are you giving who, are who, you giving legitimate definitions? Are you giving humorous yes. definitions or a combination of both? We're giving both. So we'll, each entry, if uh, for instance for EBITDA, we will give you the the traditional definition of what EBITDA stands for. Then we will give you the BS definition, and that's the joke writing. Yeah. That's when we'll tell you here's what it really means when somebody says EBITDA, for example, in the workplace. And then, and to me, this is the greatest part about this book, is I uh, partnered up with a former researcher for the Washington Post, is my co-author. And we did a very deep dive, which is a BS term, a deep dive on the origins of each of these phrases. So after the definition and the BS definition, we give you in great detail, and it's multi-sourced, and we work with the Oxford English Dictionary, by the way, in the UK to, to make sure we were correct here of here's who coined this phrase, when it started to demonstrate itself in communication in the business world. So it's got great origin stories with each one as well. I'm nice. super proud of this book. I've done a lot of creative stuff, Michael, in my time, but this is the book, I, this is the piece that I'm most proud of because it's, uh, to me, it's a book I would read. I like this stuff. And, and when people, I do stuff that I feel like I would, I would, uh, I would use, then I know I've done well. And people are noticing you're about to do a TED talk in a foreign land. Yes, I'm going to Vienna, Austria this October to do a TED talk on this very topic. How does that happen? Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know how it happened. I did a storytelling show in Jacksonville, Florida, where I'm from. And I don't know if this has any correlation to what happened in Vienna, but it's a it's an interesting 
coincidence at the very least. I did a storytelling show in Jacksonville to great effect. Uh, it went over well. And about a week later, I got an email from one of the organizers at the TED Talk in Vienna trying to find me and was say, it, we'd like you. To, so yeah. was the uh, was the bit recorded? It was, but I don't. it hadn't hit online yet. That's interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. And I, my, one of the co one of the other speakers that I had at the Jacksonville show had been a host of several TEDx talks in Jacksonville. Okay. And so I'm thinking maybe she ran it up the, the, the line to say, Hey, this guy's good at this stuff. You might right. want to check him out. Either way, I, about a week later, literally about a week after this performance, I get an email from this guy who reaches out to my co-author. He can't find me, but he finds my co-author. And he says, we are trying to find Bob Wilfong to have him submit for our TED Talk in Vienna. And I'm like, what the hell is this about? So I reach out to them. I've never done a TED Talk. And uh, they, they were an open door. They said, whatever you are passionate about and feel like would be interesting to our audience, submit an application for it. So I did a one page about BS and what I learned about BS when I wrote the book. And they like it. So they're bringing me over in October to to speak to a, a live theater audience about it. And then it'll be posted on YouTube. Congratulations, man. That's huge. Thank you. We'll have Thank to visit afterward. I, I'm interested in your impressions. I've helped, you probably have too, helped a lot of people get TED Talks. And yeah. um, and I'm eager to hear how's your how yours turns out. Yeah, I'm in the middle of drafting it right now with some coaching. So I'm, I'm as interested as you are as how this is going to turn out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's uh, let's wrap up with uh, with a big finale, man. You probably have okay. a favorite joke or a, a little bevy of jokes. Ah, uh, yes. You have one you like uh, to tell that that our listeners might enjoy. Yes, I've got a couple. One's a kind of a dad joke. They're both kind of uh, one's a little bit blue. So I'll tell the dad joke first, and then I'll tell one that could that is kind of a commentary on. Uh, social dynamics. They're both brief. Okay. Okay. These are not original jokes. They're just good jokes. That I've parked in the back of my head through the okay. years. There are okay. two potatoes standing on a street corner. How can you tell which one is a prostitute? <laughs> I'm good right there. That's funny. Okay. The one with the sticker that says Idaho. Okay. Good. Okay. Uh, the next one. Okay. Michael. And this was given to me. This is, it sounds racist. I don't think it is. I'll just use your best judgment whether you want to share this with your audience or not. I, I think it's more a commentary on, on the world we live in now than it is racist. Okay. Uh, what do you call a Mexican flying a plane? A Mexican flying a plane? Yes. What? A pilot, you racist. Yeah, see there? <laughs> Those Love are my jokes. Love it. Okay. Um, what a pleasure, man. It's uh, been great visiting with you. This is Bob Wiltfong, everybody. His new book is called The BS Dictionary. It's available on Amazon. TED Talk coming to your YouTube channel soon, I assume. Don't forget to get video, yes. Bob. Yeah, will do. And again, I hope our paths cross again soon, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.